Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you found it harder and harder to sit with a good book for long periods of time without getting that itch to check your phone? Well, you're not alone. My guest today makes the case that the internet has changed our brains in ways that make deep, focused thinking harder and harder. His name is Nicholas Carr, and he documented what was then a newly emerging phenomenon 10 years ago in his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. The Shallows has now been re-released with the new afterword, and Nick and I begin our conversation with how he thinks the effect of digital technology on our minds has or hasn't changed over the last decade. We then discuss the idea of the medium being the message when it comes to the internet and how this particular medium changes our brains and the ways we think and approach knowledge and the world. Nick then explains how we read text on screens differently than text in books, why hyperlinks mess with our ability for comprehension, why it's still important to develop our own memory bank of knowledge, even in a time when we can access facts from an outsourced digital brain, and how social media amplifies our craving for the fast and easy to digest over the slow and contemplative. And we end our conversation with how Nick himself has tried to strike a balance in keeping the advantages of the internet while mitigating its downsides. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash shallows. All right, Nicholas Carr, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brett. It's my, uh, my pleasure to return. So we had you on the show a few years ago to talk about your collection of essays, Utopia is, is Creepy. Got you back on the show because... 10 years ago, you wrote a, a book called The Shallows, How the Internet is Changing Our, our Brains. And it's been 10 years. You got a new edition out with a, an additional, like a, an afterword, kind of an update on how things have changed or not changed in those 10 years. What do you think? What have been the big changes that have taken place on the internet that have affected how we think in the 10 years since you originally released The Shallows? I think the, what's changed is the technology of computing. You know, back 10 years ago, when we talked about going online, that was still mainly, we were still mainly talking about laptops and desktop computers. And the smartphone, the smartphone had, was there. It, I think the iPhone was, was introduced in 2007, but it hadn't really taken over by 2010. So I was, I was writing the book in the era of the laptop and desktop. And, and now not only have smartphones kind of taken over from the cell phone, I, I would argue they've taken over from the personal computer as the dominant form of computing device that that people use. So I think I, on the one hand, what's the big change is, is the smartphone took over. And the other big change is that social media, which was also around in 2010, you know, Facebook was there and Twitter was there, but, but it hadn't become so dominant in the way it is now. So that's the second big change is what we do with our phones more often than not is something involving social media. And as as we talk about the the shallow, what I think is interesting about the book, I think the still the main thesis that you have that you put out there, I think still holds up. It's just that I think it's even been refined even more because, as you note in the afterward, there's been more research that's come out to sort of confirm what you you were writing about ten years ago. I think I think in many ways the what the basic themes and the basic messages and research of the book, if anything, is is. <laughs> is even more relevant today as as we've switched to smartphones and social media. Because if you think about, you know, what I talked about in the book is how there's a trade-off involved when we go online, when we use the internet. Uh, on the one hand, we get the benefit of having huge amounts of information delivered very, very quickly from all sorts of different sources, all sorts of overlapping forms, audio, video, text, and so forth. But what we what we lose is the ability to pay attention because the internet is a distraction machine. 
And so we're constantly shifting our focus, constantly getting interrupted with alerts and notifications. So we have more information, but I don't think we're thinking as deeply as we used to because we're so distracted. And if you think about smartphones and social media, if <laughs> if the internet in general is a distraction machine, smartphones and social media amp up the distractions way more than was true even 10 years ago. So I think at the level of the basic analysis of the book, unfortunately, things have gotten worse <laughs> rather than better. Well, at the, at the beginning of The Shallows, you talk about like the thing that sort of kickstarted this whole thing 10 years ago, this research project of yours, was that you had noticed that you had had a hard time like doing deep, concentrated reading of like long form articles or even books. And you started talking about this with other people and they're saying, yeah, I've got the same thing. I can't read like I used to. And how did you decide or suspect that the internet had something to do with it, you know, back in 2007? Right. Well, I mean, I've always, since I was a since I was a boy, I've been a big reader, love books. And around 2006, 2007, after having spent quite a bit of time surfing the web, as we used to call it, I noticed that I was having trouble sitting down and reading, uh, not just books, but even long articles. And what I, what I began to realize is that my brain seemed to want to, seemed to crave the stimulation it gets when I'm online, when I'm looking into a computer screen, so I can click on email, you know, go to a website, get a text message or whatever. And it was having trouble, I was having trouble shutting off that desire for this constant information stimulation and concentrate on the text for page after page after page. And what I began to realize is that it really did seem like the time I was spending online was in a sense training me to think in a different way. And that was making it harder and harder to screen out distractions and filter out this desire for information stimulation and concentrate on the page. And that was really the spur because, I, you know, one of the things I asked myself is, is this possible? I, I mean, can a tool that we use for a particular purpose actually change the way we think in some some deep way that that continues even when we're not using the tool and so that's what started me down the research that ultimately became the shallows and in a sense it was <laughs> an exercise in in self-diagnosis at least in the beginning and so this idea that you know i think most critiques so this is this is a critique of the internet unlike a lot of critiques of the internet or even television or whatever, whenever you see that people critique the media, they're typically critiquing the content, right? Like the internet, there's porn, there's violence, there's trolls, fake news, whatever. But like your critique is more meta, meta than that. You're actually critiquing or sort of looking at how the, the medium of the internet can shape the way we think and basically who we are. That's right. And, it, you know, to give credit where credit is due, I'm, I'm kind of building on the work of earlier media theorists, in particular Marshall McLuhan from the 1960s, who coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And what he, what he argued and what I argue is that it's only natural when we get a new communication medium or device to focus on the content. You know, if, if it's an old-fashioned telephone, we're focused on the conversation we're having with somebody. If it's a newspaper, we're focused on the news stories. But, but really, the deeper change comes from the technology itself. As we adapt to the new medium or the new device, 
we do, in a way, train ourselves to perceive things differently, to think differently, to have different levels of attentiveness. And I think we, we, we tend to ignore that side of things because we're so wrapped up in the content, whether we think it's good or bad or indifferent. And as a result, what happens is we adapt ourselves to the technology very, very quickly. And only later do we begin to say, hold on, maybe I've done something to myself and to, into my, my mind that isn't beneficial. And maybe I've, I, I've paid a cost that I wasn't aware of, but now all of a sudden I can't escape this, this deficit that I've taken on. You know, there's that quote, I forgot who, who said it, you know, it's like, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. Right. That was, uh, I can't remember the guy who said it, but he was, he was picking up on a McLuhan thought there. Right. And so like McLuhan, he wrote, he came with that idea of, you know, the medium is the message. This was like in the fifties, sixties, like what was he seeing? Was he seeing like television changing the way people think or interact with the world? Yeah. So he was, he was looking mainly at what he called electric media. And back then that meant radio and TV, essentially, although he looked ahead to computers and stuff. But what he was, what his big argument was that for 500 years, ever since Gutenberg invented the printing press around 1450 or so, text in particular, particularly text in books or in magazines and so forth, had been the dominant cultural medium, the dominant way we, we, exchanged information, transmitted information. And text, if you think about text, it's kind of an antisocial <laughs> technology because you can't read a book with somebody else. You have to kind of, you know, you, you have to kind of set up a barrier, a real barrier, or, or at least a kind of mental barrier in order to concentrate on text. And he thought that, that this really shaped not only the way we read, but also the way we communicate, the way we think about ourselves. He argued that it brought in much more individualism um, and also this sense that we're in charge of our own knowledge. We're in charge of our own, of building our own knowledge in our brains through this kind of isolated, deep reading. And he, he believed that electric media was overthrowing the dominance of text and bringing in a very, very different way of thinking and communicating that on the one hand was much more social and had all sorts of benefits. And I think we see this today, but also kind of withdrew us from both the practice of deep reading and deep thinking and the sense that 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 practice, that very contemplative, attentive practice was even all that important. And I think you know, so he wrote this back in 64, 1964, so, so a long time ago. But I think that part of his message resonates even more today when, when the internet and the various online tools and social media and stuff has really taken over from the book and the printed page as the basic means of cultural transmission. And we'll get into more detail about that sort of that transition from sort of, the, I guess we call it the literate brain to the, I guess, an internet brain. But I mean, I think one of the things I like about this book is you start off to explain like, how is this even possible? How is it that the brain can change or a tool can change the brain? Because for a lot of human history, there was this idea that once you reach a certain point in your, your development after adolescence, your brain is basically like concrete. And you're, you're pretty much set for the rest of your life. And then so the argument is like, well, how could it be that if you use the internet in your 50s and 60s, your brain changes because your brain's already set in sort of this concrete. 
But then you bring in this idea of neuroplasticity to explain how interacting with something like the internet can can reshape how your brain functions. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was growing up, and it really until just a few decades ago, there was this conception of the brain as being very malleable in your youth, where you you laid down your your circuits for thinking. And then at the age of 20, it was believed that that ended in, in the circuits you had built up at that point were the ones that remained throughout the rest of your life. And they didn't change. The only thing that happened, this was kind of the dark view of the brain is that your, your neurons slowly died off. So you, you had fewer and fewer, but it turns out, you know, brain scientists since then beginning in this, I think seventies and, and then building up much more recently, have discovered that, in fact, our brains are changing at a physical level, an anatomical level, throughout our entire lives. So that, so that malleability, or as they call it, plasticity, doesn't stop at 20, but, but continues on. And what, what happens is we adapt to our environment when we think, just, just in an in a analogous way to the way we adapt to our environment, physically with our body. So if you exercise a certain muscle, it gets stronger. If you don't exercise it, it atrophies. Something similar, the mechanisms are different, of course. Something similar goes on with our brain. The more we practice certain ways of thinking or exercise, those circuits in in our minds, they literally become stronger. They literally recruit more neurons, more uh, synaptic connections. But on the other hand, if we don't practice certain ways of thinking, we begin to lose those, our ability to do that. And I think that, you know, I talked about McLuhan coming up with this idea that, that, that media changes the way we think. What he didn't understand, and the, the, this come out, comes more recently, is that there's a real deep scientific biological reason for that, and that is our brains are adapting to the medium. The medium kind of creates a new environment. We think in ways that the medium encourages. And as a result, we strengthen certain ways of thinking, but we weaken other ways of thinking. So to explore this idea of how intellectual technologies, so these are things like abstract things like maps or intellectual technologies, clocks, books, schools, etc. Uh, you kind of take readers in the shallow sort of an, on an intellectual history to show how these things, these technologies have probably shaped the human mind. So let's talk about like, what was it, what was the human mind like before, you know, like an oral culture before there was even reading and writing? Do we have any idea of what, how they might've how what that, that pre-literate brain was like? Well, one thing we know is that our sense of sight <laughs> in terms of, in terms of reading the environment, the, the actual natural environment around us was probably much, much sharper, which is why if you look at societies that haven't kind of come to be dominated by text, you see you see feats of navigation and kind of reading the natural world that that are amazing to us because we can't contemplate them. And the re- one of the reasons for that is that when we when we learn how to read, we have to recruit a huge portion of our visual cortex, the part of the brain that that processes sight, in order to become efficient readers. If you think if you watch a kid learning to read, he or she goes really, really slowly. They have to sound out every letter and then put the letters together to make a word. What happens is a lot of our neurons, as, as we train ourselves to read, get dedicated to recognizing not only letters, but but syllables and, and words, and then reading becomes automatic. And so I think there's a great 
example of, of neuroplasticity and the kind of deep influence it can have. So in effect, when we teach ourselves to read, we're, sh- we're changing the way our visual cortex works in a, in a really quite a fundamental way. And we gain all the benefits that come with, with the ability to read, but we lose this kind of ability to read the natural world because we've simply, we've simply rededicated those mental resources to something else. So, I mean, that's one example. I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, in oral cultures, the way we think about society, the way we think about each other is, is very, very different to pick up on that earlier theme of, of reading, encouraging individualism. I think, I think, individ- I, I, I think people were much less focused on, on themselves in isolation in oral cultures and much more thought much more about, you know, society as, as a group of people, the boundaries between them were not so sharp as, as they became. So, so my thinking, and I think other, you know, other people have come up with this as well. And, you know, you can look at current societies that are, you know, that, that don't have modern technologies and stuff and see some evidence of this. But I, but I think it's fair to say that people thought and perceived things in very, very different ways before the alphabet came along and reading and writing came along. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. 
By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, and speaking of this idea that the the medium is the message or the tool can shape your brain, like even Socrates a couple thousand years ago, he was kind of down on, he didn't like writing because he said, I think writing is going to help us or it's going to cause us to forget things, not have a sharp memory. You don't have to remember anything. So he was kind of making a McLuhan critique of of the media, of media technology, you know, a couple thousand years ago. Exactly. And I mean, one thing that that story brings up is that reading and writing, I mean, never mind the printing press, reading and writing are, are quite new phenomena in human history. You know, they are just a little over 2000 years old when the alphabet was invented during the time when, when Socrates was alive. And what, you know, before then, the way people learned was by talking with each other, by going to a wise person or an expert like Socrates himself and having a long conversation. And he worried that a couple of things would happen thanks to reading. One is that we wouldn't be able to challenge the speaker, quote unquote, anymore because the speaker would be, we'd confront the speaker through text. Therefore, there was nobody to ask questions questions of anymore. So the kind of dialogue that he thought was very, very important to having a rich understanding of everything would no longer be available. And also, he he worried that because we'd be able to look everything up in books, then we would not we would no longer need to hold all our knowledge in our own memory. And he feared that that would weaken memory, which he very much associated with the richness of thinking. And I think it's pretty clear that he was right <laughs> about that, that, that there's there, I think there's little question that after the alphabet came along and reading and writing came along, people's memories, their store of information in their heads kind of went down pretty dramatically. 
Yeah, because you could outsource it to an external memory in a book or a scroll or whatever. Right. Neuroscientists often refer to that as transactional memory because rather than holding it in your own mind, you're you're in some way or another transacting with a book or with somebody else to get the information you need. But you know, his student Plato, he was a writer. I mean, he wrote lots of treatises, like his dialogues, they were written down. And I think Plato would say, Well, yeah, you might, you might. There's a there's a trade off. Yeah, you you your memory might be weakened, but it says when you write the thing down, like it becomes objective, right? So you can like point to it and say, "This is what you said," because if you rely on your memory, there's all sorts of things that can happen there where you misremember or something. I don't know. It can change inside you as you processed it. But with writing, you can say, "Well, no, this is what this is what you said. We're going to focus on this." Yeah, so I mean, the big irony is, of course, everything, pretty much everything we know about so- everything we know about Socrates comes from Plato's writings. And if <laughs> if writing hadn't come along and Plato hadn't written all down all these dialogues, we wouldn't we'd have no knowledge of Socrates, or or and would have no opportunity to be taught by him, even if the way we're being taught is imperfect in in Socrates' eyes. And so, yeah, I think Socrates, I think he was right in much of his diagnosis about what would happen to memory. But I think he underestimated the power of the written word to to expand the facts and opinions and arguments and stories that people would have access to as we build up this huge store of literature that's suddenly available. And, and so the written word kind of breaks down the barriers to the transmission of knowledge speeds it up, speeds it up over space and over time. You no longer have to be a, a, a resident of Athens and have immediate access to Socrates to tap into Socrates's knowledge. And in a way, this kind of tension between Socrates and Plato is a tension that that is ultimately resolved in favor of Plato, the writer. And yet, I do think that in many ways you know, our intellectual lives, our store of knowledge, all were greatly expanded by the arrival of the written word and the persistence of text. That doesn't mean that that Socrates was wrong. It just means he didn't really foresee all the implications of the new technology. And then, so as the alphabet was developed, books were developed, and as you mentioned, this, this shaped the way we thought because writing and reading could become a private affair. You could have thoughts and experiment, which gave way to new ideas. And also writing or reading and writing encourages what you call linear thinking, where you're not, everything's not sort of like disorganized. It's like you have to make an argument so it flows in the paper. And that had big implications for us as a society. I think so. And I, I think it did. I think it greatly encouraged all sorts of experiments with expressiveness, experiments with arguments, experiments with narrative, everything we benefit from today that was built up through, you know, decades and centuries uh, of writing. But it also, I think it also, one thing we, we, we take for granted or don't fully appreciate about the act of deep reading, and here I'm talking about really you know, getting lost in a book or an article, as the saying goes, is that's often portrayed today as kind of a passive activity. Oh, you don't get to, you know, you don't get to click a like button or you don't get to comment on uh, on it because it's all it's all just fixed prose. But I think that gets it totally wrong. I think one of the great things that comes from deep reading of something in print where you're focusing your whole mind on it is that it, in a sense, opens a clearing 
inside your mind where your own ideas and your own store of knowledge and your own memory collides with whatever the author's writing, whether it's a fictional story or whether it's an argument of, of nonfiction. And as we read in that way, we're constantly kind of testing our own ideas. We're constantly bringing our own experience into the story or the narrative. And it there's this dialogue, I th- and this is one thing that Socrates missed, I think. There's this dialogue between author and reader that goes on that very, very much enriches, I believe, our own, not only our own store of knowledge, but really our own our own ability to think deeply and to analyze other people's ideas and to put new information into a broader context. I think all of that was helped by the arrival of the written word and particularly the printed word, which made it by over time reducing the cost of books. One important advantage of the printing press is it was an economic advantage. It it opened these works to a much broader portion of the population and encouraged ultimately widespread literacy. All right, well, let's talk about how the internet is possibly changing the way we think, or not possibly, we have, there's scientific evidence that's showing that it's changing the way we think. Let's talk about the, just the fact of reading on a screen. So when the internet first came on the scene, the, the first thing that people put up there, because it was the, the easiest, didn't take up that much memory or RAM or bandwidth, was just text. And so the idea was like, well, you're, if it's just text on a screen, it's just basically like reading a, a printed book. There's not going to be much of a difference, but you highlight all this research that says whenever text is on a screen, we read it differently than we are in a physical paper book. Yeah. And, you know, there's one kind of assumption that is very common, which is that text is text. You know, who cares if I'm reading it in a book or on a desktop screen or even on my, on my phone, it's all the same. It's still the same words. And so it, the same meaning and, and therefore we shouldn't worry about it. I think the the research is pretty clear that that's not true. That actually the medium through which we read influences the way we read. And and the reason for that I think is pretty clear. You know, if you think about a printed book for instance, there's nothing else going on in the book other than the text. And therefore the the book itself in a kind of almost literal way serves as a screen against distractions. Because there are always distractions in our lives. There are always other things going on. Our minds are wander all the time. It's very, very hard for human beings to screen out distractions and really concentrate and focus our mind. And I think the printed book, by kind of isolating text, very, very much helped train us to pay attention, to not give in to distractions and not let our mind waver all the time as, as it sort of wants to do. Compare that to a computer screen, any kind of computer screen, whether it's your phone or your laptop or whatever. Sure, there's the text you're reading, but then there's all sorts of other things going on or available to you. There there are alerts, there's notifications, there's text messages, other messages, there's uh, social media notifications, there's all the websites you might click on, and even the text itself is different because there are links in the text. So the links, and this is some of the most interesting, I, I think, research that I explore in the book, links themselves are little distractions. We, we're not even aware of it. But when you come across a highlighted piece of text that you can click on when you're reading online, 
somewhere in your mind, you're evaluating it. You're saying, why is this highlighted? Why is this a link? What's going to happen if I click on it? Will I get something useful or useless? Should I click on it or not? All of that, which we're not conscious of, disrupts our attention as we read. And there's some, some very good studies that show that people who read the exact same text, if it has links in it, they comprehend less and they retain less. So all of these, all of these differences in the medium itself mean that while we certainly can read online, we spend a, still spend a lot of time reading online, the quality of that reading and the depth of that reading is not the same as we get when we're reading printed material where there aren't all of those distractions going on simultaneously. Yeah, they've done eye tracking whenever, you know, comparing reading in a book and reading on a screen. And when you read on a screen, you just skim, like you're kind of just, you're like a hunter, like looking for just sort of big pieces of information. And once you get it, you move on. And with a book, you're more likely just to read the whole thing through. Right. So yeah, there's a, the eye tracking studies show that we read on a on a screen we read in an F pattern, which means we kind of our 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 eyes go across the first couple of lines of text all the way, and then it we drift down the left margin, then go about halfway across, and then just drift down the left margin and continue to drift down the left margin, and then click and and go out. And I want to say that there's nothing wrong with skimming and scanning, even in printed text. I mean, I mean, think of how we used to read, still some of us do, printed newspapers. It's not like we're reading every article in depth with total attentiveness. There's all sorts of skimming and scanning going on. The difference, though, is that skimming and scanning becomes the dominant form of reading on a computer screen because there's so much going on and so many distractions. So we rarely give ourselves the op- even the opportunity to get lost in a text to really engage in deep reading. There are many ways to read, and they're all very, very important. The problem with the computer screen is it steals from us both the practice of and the encouragement to engage in really attentive, contemplative, deep reading. I want to go back to this idea of of hyperlinks, because this was one of the big selling points of the internet, is that you could take all this information and hyperlink it together and give people more context about a particular topic without, you know, having to focus on a particular piece. So, so if you're reading War and Peace, for example, the idea is you can link to different things within War and Peace, like to a Wikipedia article to explain something about Russian history. And the idea is like, well, can this will actually help people know more about this? But the studies say actually hyperlinking all this information together often results in people knowing and understanding less of about a topic. Yeah. And it, it all comes down to this the fact that links are distractions. They're distractions when you click on them and you suddenly jump to somewhere else. And they're distractions even when you don't click on them. So all of these studies, and these are studies from quite a long time ago, because you're absolutely right that in the early days of the web, everybody was really excited about hyperlinks. I mean, for one thing, it was fun to click on them and jump somewhere else. But also there there were all sorts of scholars and educators that thought, oh, this is going to be a big breakthrough in reading because you'll you know, be able to read contrasting opinions or whatever. And all of that is true. I, I mean, links are can be very helpful. But nevertheless, when you look at the way people comp reading comprehension and the retention of information from reading, they go down when links are incorporated into text. And there was one study I talk about that actually took the same piece of text and just varied the number of links 
that appeared in the text and then had lots of different people, participants in the experiment, read. And what they found is that the more links you get, the lower the comprehension is. So that created a very clear kind of sign that links are intruding on our ability to read deeply and, as a result, derive the benefits that come from deep reading, which are everything from remembering what you've read to also getting into that that deep state I talk, talked about earlier, where your 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 mind is kind of bringing all of its all of its resources and all of its existing learning into the act of reading, and you're kind of challenging yourself and expanding both what you know, but also expanding the context of your understanding. And as you you expand that, then whenever you get new information coming into you, then you can fit it into this bigger context and it becomes more meaningful. So there is this big trade-off, I think, with reading online versus reading on a printed page. And unfortunately, as a culture, we're we're voting for <laughs> we're voting for the screen. So. Well, you know, I think you also mentioned another study in the shallows where they did an experiment. It, it relates to task switching or, or trying to multitask, and that can cause comprehension to go down as well. So they gave people in one group they gave people two things to read, but they had to read one first and then the next thing, and then the next group they gave like you could like go back and forth between the two with hyperlinks. And what ended up happening was the people who just read things one at a time remember, were able to remember more. The people who were going back and forth, I think they thought they knew a lot about the topic, but when you actually tested them from comprehension, they didn't actually remember that much. Right. They 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 remembered less. And they also they had a, a much more superficial understanding of what they read. And also, and this is also important, they enjoyed it less. They thought it was less fulfilling to read it. They didn't think it was as worthwhile. So it kind of this this sense we have that, oh, if we could only just do things simultaneously, we'd get the benefits of contrasting and and everything. It just doesn't it just doesn't hold up. I mean, I mean, what all this research points to is that sure, there are times when you want to be distracted, you want to be sharing information very, very quickly. But if you really want to think deeply, you have to focus because that's when, it all comes down to this this process that uh, scientists refer to as memory consolidation, which is moving information that's coming into your mind, new information, into your long-term memory. And that it's during that process, memory consolidation, that you create associations and connections with the new information, between the new information and everything else you know, everything else contained in your brain. And it's those connections and associations, not the little isolated bits of information that are the basis for personal knowledge. And one thing we know about memory consolidation is that it really only happens when we're attentive. If you're distracted and you're taking in a jumble of information, you're not going to develop those associations and connections, those rich associations. And as a result, yeah, you might have quick access to a particular particular fact, but you're not going to weave that fact into a broader and deeper context and set of knowledge in your own mind. Well, this segues nicely to my next question, which is another thing that happens with the internet is because we know that we can just look something up, we can Google it, or we can, like my email, I treat my email basically like Google now because I use Gmail. So I just archive everything. And I'm like, well, if I need to remember something, I'll just search for it. And one one argument is that for the sort of pro-internet is that, well, this is great because 
now that you're not having to remember all these facts or all this stuff, you're able to spend, you have more brain power to expend on creativity and reasoning and, and solving complex problems. Is there anything to that argument that, that having this external memory like Google, that we, it gives us more time or more brain power to focus on higher level thinking? No, <laughs> I, mean, okay. I think that I think that's a misreading of of how the mind works. It, and I'm not making an argument against having stores of information outside of our own memory that we can draw on. That's I mean, that's one thing books and everything else gave us, and it's extremely important. But it's also important to recognize that the depth of our thought, the the rigor of our analysis, and, and everything is all about is all about building context so we can fit new information into this kind of bigger picture. In actuality, what the, what the research suggests is that the more, the richer the store of information you have in your own mind, in your own memory, the more deeply you'll process new information. And as a result, the more thoughtful you'll be, the more analytical you'll be, the better able you'll be to evaluate the worth of some new piece of information. So memory, the store of information in your own head, is very, very tightly linked to the depth and rigor of your thinking. It's not like these are two separate things. And, oh, if I spend energy on remembering things, then I'll have less mental energy to, to go toward analysis or, or whatever. That's, that simply gets our thought processes wrong. It's, it, it, it's actually very important to build up this deep store of information in our own heads, in our own memory, and supplement it with the stuff that's that we can Google or the stuff that's in books. So if we think of it in terms of supplementing our own rich store of information with all the information that's outside of us and is written down somewhere or is on videos or whatever, that's fine. That, that gives us the best of both worlds. But if we think of, of the web and of Google as a substitute for our own memory, and this is what a lot of people argue, I think mistakenly, then that's when we get into trouble. Because at that point, we no longer develop the context necessary to really fully evaluate all the information that's coming at us so quickly online. Well, that's interesting because that kind of goes against, I mean, the pedagogy that they're you know, doing in elementary schools or high schools. It's like, well, we want to teach kids how to reason and think. So we're not going to spend a lot of time learning facts, but I was like, well, how, do you, how do you expect a kid to like reason about the constitution or whatever, if they don't even know like what the constitution is, like sort of, no, like you have to have the building blocks in order to, you know, make an argument or, or analyze something. Exactly. And, and so, you know, I've been, we've been talking about this in terms of the technology, but really this, there's something broader that's been going on culturally and socially where We've come to believe that you can, you can separate memory, what you know, from how you think. In actuality, you can't do that. So this isn't, I'm not making an argument for rote memorization, for sitting down and just, you know, going through a set of numbers or a set of facts and, and just going over them over and over and over again. What I am arguing for is that we have to recognize that to think deeply about anything, you have to actually know stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, our minds start to, to work like computers, where you have some particular fact you need to plug into some 
some something you're doing and you grab that fact and then immediately forget it and go on to the next thing some you can you can do some activities some mental activities that way and you can do them quite successfully but if you really if you really want to think deeply you have to know things because that's the that's the only way to build the context necessary to connect a new piece of information with a lots of other pieces of information. And it's only at that point that thinking actually becomes really interesting. That's interesting. You mentioned, you brought up that idea that we treat the brain like a computer. I always think it's fascinating to study the history of metaphors for brains throughout history, because it says a lot about the technology of the time. So, you know, back in the you know, industrial evolution, the brain was like a, a machine or it was like a, a hydraulic pump. And the way you think about your brain, it actually, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency for it to influence how you, you go about interacting with the world. So what do you think are the implications of us thinking of our brain as just a computer? Beyond just what you just said, that, oh, you can yeah. just sort of just data in, data out, that's all it is. I think, that, I think the danger is that we, we begin to, we begin to value only those ways of thinking that resemble the way a computer works. And that's very much, you know, maximizing the efficiency of input and output. So we start to think, oh, the more information I can get, the more the more quickly, then that's all to the good. And what we begin to devalue are the ways of thinking that happen when we're not being stimulated by flows of information. So things like contemplation, reflection, but attentiveness in general, all of those ways of thinking, which are completely, you know, go against the grain of what computers can do, all of those ways of thinking we begin to think are dispensable. And I believe that's, I believe that's one of the stories of our times, that, that not only are we engaging in things like contemplation and reflection less often, but we're beginning to think we don't really need those ways of thinking. As long as we, as long as we're processing lots of information and lots of messages as quickly as possible, as long as we're googling a lot of stuff, clicking on a lot of buttons and icons, then then we're thinking in a kind of optimum fashion because then we're thinking more and more like computers. And you know, I think I think that might be one of the great tragedies of modern times is that we're we're losing even this sense that contemplation and attentiveness in quiet, deep thought has value. Well, let's go, let's talk about this idea of the, the of social media. So like the, the smartphone, obviously, it just, it just amplifies our distractedness. I mean, you're, there's so many things you can, you're, you're surfing the web on your phone, you're like, get a notification from your app, and then you're going to check Instagram. But let's talk about what is this increased social interactivity of the web? What is that doing or sort of amplifying with how the internet is is affecting our brain. Yeah, and that's a, you know, that's one of the questions I I tried to wrestle with when I was writing this the new um afterward to the book because the shallows focus is very much on on personal thinking and how having access to all this information online changes the way we as individuals think. What's become very, very clear over the last 10 years as social media has become more and more popular and become more and more kind of central, not only to how we use computers, but how, to, how we live our lives, is that there's very, very much a social aspect that wasn't as clear 10 years ago. And I think, and I think we're still learning about 
the effects of, of this. And, and there are good effects and, and there are ill effects. And, and in some ways during the pandemic, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're speeding up our learning because now even more than before, we're, we're reliant on social media of various sorts to, to do things that we used to do in person, whether it's business meetings or classrooms or, or cocktail parties or whatever. And so I, I think in, in, in recent years, well, let me back up. I, I think, again, one of the stories here is that in the beginning, we focus on all the good things that come out of, of having social media and our ability to exchange information with others and to express ourselves. We focus very much on the positive side of that. Oh, we've broken down the barriers to media, so each of us can be a producer and a content creator, and we can get our messages out to the world. And that that's very important, I think, and that is a big benefit. But in recent years, we've learned that there are big negatives as well. And a lot of those big negatives come from the fact that human nature has a bright side and it has a dark side. And to think that if we have this technology that allows everybody to express everything going on in their head all the time, that that's going to draw out the very negative qualities of human nature, as well as the sunnier qualities of human nature. And once you create this, <laughs> this kind of web of social media, it becomes very, very hard to, to figure out how to regulate it, how to emphasize the good qualities, but get rid of the trolling and the fake news and the vindictiveness and the, everything else that we've, we've been struggling with. And I think companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter they they're in a position now where it's quite clear that a lot of the you know a lot of effect, the effects of their services are are quite negative but the social media work at such a scale and such a speed it becomes very very difficult to figure out how do we how do we rein in this information and and I think that's what we're we're seeing today is is a lot of struggles with all of these these things and what's interesting too, and thanks to the smartphone, because it's got a camera, a lot of the way we communicate is very visual or video. So it's like you you share, share a picture on Instagram, you, a meme, you create these memes on your smartphone that's just sort of an image with a few simple words, TikTok videos, YouTube, like that's what people people gravitate. They're not gravitating towards like long form articles in the New Yorker. They just want the, the 15 second TikTok video. Yeah, it's been a... Uh quite a dramatic change, I, you know, particularly over the last 10 years. I, I, you know, we had YouTube and we were, we had a lot of visual ways of exchanging information online 10 years ago, but, but that's all accelerated greatly. I mean, I mean, if you look back in the early days of Facebook, it was very, very text-based. That's no longer the case. And so, you know, again, I, I think there's, there's good and bad things here. There's, I think one of the things that's going on is that the way we communicate is changing to respond to the fact that with our phones or other computers connected to the internet, there's a super abundance of information and it's all streaming by very, very quickly. So you have to kind of, you have to grab a person's attention and get as much information across as quickly as possible. And I think, I think videos, photographs and certainly memes which are kind of this new form new form of expression that often intermingles text and in pictures images 
I think all of these are a response to the to the need to make a point very, very quickly because you know that the audience is is not going to stay focused on one thing for very long. And so what you get is this uh, a great deal of creativity in expressing things visually with maximum efficiency and sometimes with great humor and wit and stuff. But what you lose, I think, is is the depth of engagement. So you have to not only you have to not only design communications to fit within the medium, but you have to make them more and more superficial because you know that that's that's about the best you can <laughs> the best way you can you can grab a person's fleeting attention. Uh, superficial and also amp up any emotional content because that's what what stands out in the flow of information. Well, I mean, how have you? So I think I think the case you're not. I mean, you're critiquing the internet, but you're also saying, okay, there's some good things about the internet too. We just got to be aware of what it's doing to our brains, uh, to our minds, and the way we think. How have you personally tried to sort of balance the benefits of the internet while also trying to downplay or mitigate its downsides and in sort of have keep that literate brain of, that you you once had yeah and so you know as i said that my writing about this subject and you know the inspiration for the shallows initially came out of my own experience struggling with maintaining my ability to to be attentive and to be contemplative and things i value and and it's still you know, even after even after doing the research and writing the book and kind of coming to, I think, a better understanding of why I and others are experiencing this, it's still a struggle. In fact, it, it's probably even even more of a struggle. For a long time, I, I held off and didn't get a get a smartphone. And then finally, I gave in, <laughs> and of course, now. Like everyone, I carry it with me all the time. It's always on. It's always kind of, even if it's not actively distracting me, you know, part of my part of my brain is saying, gee, I should pull out my phone and see what's going on. And so the, even that is a distraction. So, you know, I guess I guess what I've done is tried to at least at least moderate some of the biggest sources of distraction. So I, I've turned off notifications on my apps and the other phone functions and stuff to the extent possible. Uh, they still come through because it's almost a full-time job tur- <laughs> turning off and keeping off notifications because companies who develop these apps really want to keep you distracted. And, uh, and also, I, t- I try at least, and sometimes I'm successful, sometimes not, to actually not take my phone with me <laughs> all the time. Because it in, in there's some recent research that I, that I talk about in the afterward that, that shows that even even when your phone's in your pocket and you're not using it and there's it's not buzzing or anything it's still a major drag on your attention major, major draw on your attention so i try to you know if i'm going to go out to have dinner or something i'll say do i really need to bring my phone with me and more often than not the answer is no and so i'll leave it behind or if i'm going for a walk or so i'm i'm trying to be more disciplined in choosing when I have my phone with me and when it's going to distract me rather than simply go, rather than simply take the course that I think as a society we've kind of accepted without thinking, which is you should have your phone with you all the time. So those are a couple of things, but you know, I have to be, I have to be honest, it's a, it's a constant struggle and I, I still find it distressingly uh, difficult to kind of shut off this craving for stimulation and sit down and and do something that requires concentration like like reading 
a, a long article or a book. So I think this is, you know, I think very much this is the new environment, cultural environment, social environment, intellectual environment we've created for ourselves. And it values some ways of thinking and devalues other it, others. And for those of us who want to try to maintain a, an ability to, to, to think deeply and read deeply, it really does mean that, that we're going to, we're going to be kind of constantly in a sense, working against pushing back against not only the technology, but the, the set of cultural and social norms that has developed around the technology and is constantly telling us we have to be always online, always exchanging messages, watching messages, replying very, very quickly. Our culture has changed in a way that is very much a process of adapting to the technology. Well, Nick, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the, the new book, the update, and the rest of your work? Um, well, I have a website. So you can go there and be distracted. It's nicholascar.com. And that has a, a list of my various books, as well as some of the articles and essays I've written over the years. So that would be the best starting point. Fantastic. Well, Nicholas Carr, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Nicholas Carr. He is the author of the book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, nicholascarr.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash shallows, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.